Metricast. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Sherrett Ross. He's the co-CEO of Cardata, a company that provides an easy and cost-effective way to reimburse employees for using their personal vehicle for work. He also co-founded Spruce Grove Capital, the search fund he used to source and ultimately acquire the company he's now running. In this one, we discuss the process of launching a search fund and finding car data, the mechanics of search funds versus, say, venture capital, private and growth equity, etc. We also chat about Sherrod's experience hiring talent and working remote and much, much more. So with that, let's get right to the show. Here is Sherrod Ross. So let's start with the very basics of a search fund. What is a search fund and how does it work? So search fund is a financial vehicle that first-time operators use to raise funds to not only look for business to buy, but then also transact on a business that they find with the intent of running that company. So the sweet spot is really one of two categories. It's either tech or tech-enabled service that didn't go the venture path, potentially is too small for growth equity or private equity. The other category of search fund deals are usually more traditional B2B services type companies. So think about HVAC, plumbing, disaster restoration, things like that, that are very receptive and resilient and are very sticky in terms of the cat flow customer population. So the usual profile of companies that searchers often try to target. The mechanics of how search fund works is someone who's looking to go pursue this model will raise a effectively two-year burn rate to cover things like salary, rents, travel, legal expenses, accounting expenses, enough to cover overhead for, for two years. And within that timeline, source one single business to transact on. Once the deal is in LOI and diligence has been completed, the searcher goes back to their original investors to raise additional equity to facilitate a transaction. So that's how the mechanics of it work. I can speak to more specifics of what's the upside, what's the motivation to do this versus launching your own company. But yeah, we'll touch on both of those things. In terms of your time and effort spent on raising funds from investors for your search fund, and or finding a business to invest in. Are you sort of splitting time 50-50 in terms of your effort there? Or how is it working in that regard? Yeah, I would say the nice thing about this model is that the investors in the search world are actually very helpful and often are more like advisors where your cost and communication related to the deals that you're looking at. You shouldn't be at the five-yard line and have any issues raising the funds. This kind of ultimately what happens. You're usually chatting with your investors either weekly or monthly, depending on their level of investment in your fund and just the relationship that you build with them over time. But it's really about trying to find a good deal that you can clearly understand the motivation to sell from the seller, seller perspective, one that I would say is not trying to get top of the market in terms of multiple, something that is reasonable. Often I find searchers do the best when they can engage 
sellers directly and avoid auction processes and actually build that relationship and build custom exit plans. And that was really how we differentiated was really going to the seller and trying to understand like, what do they want in terms of purchase price? What do they want in terms of reps and warranties? Things like early ads and B2B that figuring out what they actually really want before it's presenting them some random number based on some average multiple in, in market. Did you guys get it right the first time? So the first deal that you were interested in and or found, did it close? It did, but not with us. We found a deal pre-COVID. Unfortunately, during COVID, cross-border travel was, was a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, we, some US folks take on that company because it was a US-based software company. Mm-hmm. And that deal closed. But we had about two or three of these situations where you go through diligence and maybe you find something that you just can't overcome in terms of how you can be helpful post-sale. How do you guys go about finding the deal flow? How do you find these companies? So we tried a few different CRMs. We first tried HubSpot and tried to build a really detailed engine to prospect. I think what we found is that it was just overly complicated. And so we try to peel it back and simplify it. And so we ultimately just utilize LinkedIn and a network of interns to help us prospect for specific industries that we were interested in. And through this whole process, built out a CRM of over 20,000 companies over the two years. And I would say we got pretty good response rates. We were at about, I think, 20% response rates during the search fund. So we talked to many hundreds of owners and businesses and learned a lot. And ultimately our approach was really centered around, we don't know what we don't know. So get on the phone with the owner and try to learn as much as we can about the business before making any discrimination of whether we should do it or not. Some people call this model entrepreneurship by acquisition. It seems to be a model that's becoming more and more popular at a graduate school. Two questions here. Why is this model more and more attractive? to this particular demographic? And why do you find it beneficial to those looking to own and operate a business? Yeah, so I would say firstly, in Canada, it's not really as well known as it is in the US. It's pretty well taught at US MBA programs, not so much so in in the Canadian scene. And I learned it through someone who had been there and done it and walked me through the whole model. And to me, it was really the perfect fit because for me, I felt my career been a lot of time in tech and CPG and, and ultimately was on the operator side, never on the figuring a product market fit side. And I think the conclusion I came to is I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but I didn't want to have to solve for a product market fit. When you guys were searching for car data, which is the company you ultimately landed on and are now operating, how many companies had you spoken with beforehand? I think it was like 500 companies. So we spoke to a lot of businesses. We traveled pre-COVID. We traveled from Pelham, Alabama to Walt Lake City. We traveled everywhere to meet all those owners. And it was a really cool experience to meet all these different personalities and different business owners with different industries that they're working in. It, it was a lot. And I think by the end of it, you, you know, have some pattern recognition about what you're looking for, things that you're kind of interested in whether that's recurring revenue, whether that's less customer concentration, whether that's things that you think that you can help on. So I think by the time we got to Cardia, we had that list and it was ultimately the perfect fit for what we were trying to find. Anything looking back 
with respect to the search process that you would have done differently over the course of those two years? Yeah, I think the thing that we learned was that we, I think we initially started with, I think, 10 or 15 interns and that ultimately turned into more of a management problem versus a scaling problem. So we peeled that back and ultimately through the course of just folks going back to school and just iterating on it, we landed on the perfect sweet spot of two to three interns really worked the best for us. That was key. And say the other lesson that we learned was we had gone through a few auction process and broker processes, and ultimately we were not the highest price sort of opportunities. And so I would probably in hindsight, not bid on those deals anymore because they take time and occupy mind share. And ultimately characters aren't the most competitive in those, in those deals. So I would refocus on proprietary channel, reaching out to sellers or owners, really trying to build those relationships through our investor network, our community network, and nurture those. The one piece that I think a lot of listeners will be wrestling with is how do I make a living while I'm looking for a company? And if I have to do due diligence on all these companies and talk to say four to 500 companies over the course of two years to find the right deal, how am I going to sustain myself financially? There's really two paths. You can either do self-funded search where it's folks who are typically more established financially, they've accrued some savings and they're just using their savings to source a business Mm -hmm. and bringing the deal to investors. And then there's the model that we did, which is called a traditional search fund, where we raise initial capital to fund salaries throughout the search. My partner and I had a salary for the two years as part of that burden rate. So in my opinion, in hindsight, it's, there's always risk to whether it's a job, whether it's to a startup. And in my view, the search, the traditional search fund model is pretty low risk because in my view, ultimately we didn't find a company to acquire. We were learning a lot of transferable skills. So these folks are investing in you guys to source and find this deal. If you ultimately do not, and they've been funding your salary for two years, plus all these expenses, what happens to the investor's capital? That's the risk that they take initially when they invest is that they know that you're ultimately looking for business to buy without one to find when you watch, right? And so they're investing in you and your ability to do that. A few things could happen. Ultimately, there's data to suggest 70% of search funds that get launched find deals. So there's a high probability that searchers find company to, to transact on. For those cases that do not find opportunities, typically, you know, they'll, they'll kind of assess that at the, called the one, one and a half year mark and make a judgment call whether they want to re-up with the investors to continue on the search for return whatever they have left back to the investors or wind down the fund. So there's a few different ways. And typically you work with your lead investors to figure out what's right for the cap table. But most people who do this have that itch to really find that company. And so they're not really going to pack it in so easy. Can you just walk me through the narrative that you and Michael had with a prospective investor at the beginning? You guys don't have a track record as investors. You set up the search fund for the first time, and then you're going out and you're crafting a story in hopes that you raise some capital. So what was that story that you went to investors with? What they need to get comfort around is your resume. And also, could they look you in the face and think that you can 
managing a team of 50 plus people. That's ultimately what they're trying to solve for. And then the other thing too, is that they're buying options, right? So the initial investment that they're making ranges from, if they're buying a unit in Korea from 40 to 50,000, some people put in half a unit into the initial search fund, which could be 20 to 25,000. So ultimately it's a low risk investment initially to buy options into the deal that I bring back to them. And so the calculus, I think what happens with these search fund investors, they could go out and hire an MBA to be an associate or a VP at their firm to business develop their pipeline for 150K plus salary, or they could invest up to 50 grand into a search fund with the option to do the deal. So we're, we're somewhat sort, uh, cheap deal flows, kind of how I look at it. Mm-hmm. And then the story and pit from our side is my background has been in more of the sales and marketing and ops side during my career. And I partnered with Mike Fedman for 10 plus years who came from an M&A. So it was the balance of, he was the, the finance and back office. I was the front office and sales and marketing side of the package. And that kind of how we, we complimented each other and pitched the investors. Okay. So you ultimately find car data. You then are parachuted into this company as co-CEOs in this case. I just wonder about the whole co-CEO thing. When does it work? When does it not? What's been your experience? I think it really depends on who you partner with, right? Given that there's this inherent trust with Mike that we can debate a topic and reach a conclusion at least, and ultimately we still trust each other. That was ultimately the key, right? And we learned through the search fund that worked for us, right? So for us, the co-CEO model truly does work. There's so many things to work on at these types of companies that he's really focused on keeping the lights on is what we call it, right? Like the back office, making sure the product and engine team is working, making sure everyone's paying their bills on tie, things like that. Whereas I'm trying to grow the house and try to bring more leads to the table on the sales side. So it's really worked for us in the matter of a division of labor. And I would also just say we are truly partners on this and that He'll opine on things on the sales and marketing side, and I'll do the same on, on his side. And we really try to be collaborative in a lot of the decisions. And I can tell you, there's never been a topic that we haven't reached some form of conclusion on that was probably the right debate to have that we reached a happy medium. So I would say for us, it works because we could debate that. And usually we reach the right answer. Has the organization taken to this setup? Are there challenges with respect to company culture, HR, leadership? We've grown a team from 15 to 70 plus, and we've ultimately recruited most of these folks into the organization. So everyone coming in knew the arrangement, knew us personally, and we built those relationships. I think there was a pretty clear understanding of the shared duties on that. You mentioned 15 to 75. So the other achievements here, which is pretty impressive, you guys are on a path to have tripled annual recurring revenue by your second year anniversary, which is great. You continue to invest in product innovation. You've got grand plans in the US to continue to grow that market. So what's next on the agenda? I would say continue to acquire new customers. There's still a big TAM that we're chasing down in terms of the growth opportunity. I would say there is many new products, ideas that we're doing a ton of research on right now to figure out whether our user population could benefit from it. Ultimately, we want to help our drivers save money and help improve their personal P&Ls. So 
things like insurance, things like car financing, things like payment frequency. Those are the things that works for right now that could expand Alpu, but it's kind of grand vision is multi-year process. Arpu is average revenue per user, just for folks that don't understand that term. What is the problem that you guys are solving? What is Cardata doing for its customers? Cardata makes it easy and simple for anyone to use their personal card for work. Mm. That's the easiest statement to summarize the business. It depends on what your current situation is. Some companies use company branded cars and company leased cars. Some companies pay their employees a flat vehicle allowance, which is treated as pure income, which is taxable. Some pay the standard IRS or CRA rate, which often over reverses or under reverses depending on the frequency that you drive. So the way that we provide our service, we administer a few different programs, but most predominantly something called FAVOR, which stands for fixed and variable rate reimbursement. Mm -hmm. And without getting too specific, effectively, we provide the means and the data behind calculating what you should actually be reimbursed based on where you live in the country and match that up with the amount of business miles that you accrue in your travels by using a business mileage tracking app. And then we'll actually facilitate the reimbursement back to drivers in a tax-free way. Is this shift to remote work working against the business? Is it working for the business? How do ride-sharing companies impact the business model, if at all? How do you think about these headwinds if they exist? And if they don't, or I've, I'm completely off base in what I'm thinking about, just as top of mind here, what are the headwinds? I would say remote work. We haven't seen the impact of remote work on our customers because our customers are folks that need people on the road talking to their accounts. So think like beverage companies that are selling into physical locations. Think like any CPG or pharma med device type sale is pretty hard to fully migrate to a remote models. So we haven't seen the impact and that change. I would say the macro headways would be probably focused on technology innovation around autonomous driving, potentially, uh, but I still think that is multi-decades away from anything kind of a substance. And ultimately they'll still need people in those cars to sell and visit sites. So there'll still be costs associated to it. So kind of how I'd phrase the, the headwinds, but from a tailwind perspective, things that we're seeing of interest, I think would be the conversion to electric vehicles has been a big one and a hot topic for a lot of our customers on how do they transition into that model. Are you guys physically in the office or back in the office now as a team? We've been hybrid for the last two years. We're moving office locations and the plans today to secure a location more central to our employees. But at the current moment, we were migrating to a temporary remote situation. Do your employees care about that setup? Have they expressed interest in continuing to work remotely? Do they prefer to come into the office? What have you seen? I think people are itching to get back into the office from what I've seen. And when we're talking to applicants who are applying for roles, people are actually now requesting hybrid. I think they want different kinds of spaces now than they did before. They want more collaborative boardroom style setups, less bullpen type setups, more space. We're trying to accommodate and learn. And then at the same time, like we don't want to lock into 
a five-year lease for a massive amount of space and then no one show up. So I think we're going to take more of a phase approach to doing more in-person meetings, in-person retreats, and then seeing how adoption goes and accommodate the office space. How are you navigating the current inflationary and or interest rate environment? How are you thinking about it? How are you strategizing into 2023? It impacts different aspects, both good and bad. So I think net net, we're kind of the same because, you know, costs go up, but so does our kind of ability to take CPI. So it's one of those things where it's hard to plan for and we're just keeping a fluid pulse on, but it, it's something that we're not really heading against at this currently. Are you seeing your client base, because you guys, you're a B2B model, are you seeing your client base attempt to cost cut and thereby take vehicles off the road in order to cut expenditure there? Or are you seeing them, let's say, double down on sales efforts, put more employees on the road as a hedge in that regard in order to grow the top line, for example? I think it's funny because we are technically a cost solution when we save people money. Ultimately, our customers want to keep their drivers happy, if not happier, with transitioning to our business. So I often find that our customers or prospects never want to maximize the saving opportunities because they want to ensure that their employees get paid and retention and satisfaction is, is the number one priority. So that's one that we've seen as a trend. Let me ask you another inflationary question. Salaries, have they been impacted? If so, is it obvious that there is salary inflation? I would say it's hard to really know because of all the layoffs that are happening in the tech community. And I think that's driving down salary expectations and then you have inflation that's increasing. So it somewhat balances each other out a bit in terms of what people are asking for. Our approach to recruitment has always been, this is the budget that we have for the role. And we keep looking for folks that fit that model. And we often don't increase that. And we don't want to be in a position where we are outside of our comfort around budget to find that perfect person. And so ultimately, we're looking for culture, a culture fit. So a lot of it just comes down to conversations with multiple people and asking the same questions in different ways and trying to learn as much as we can. And then we all get together and make an assessment. Had you had prior experience hiring? Before this? Yeah, I worked at a few venture backed companies where I was tasked with hiring. And I think what I've learned as my newly minted co CEO is that recruitment falls on the executive teams. And that's what I tell all my people, managers, that if they want people managers, they have to be able to recruit, including myself. I have personally recruited, I think, I don't know, over 40 or 50 of the people that we brought in personally. Have you figured out? The pattern recognition, if you've had a high success rate of acquiring talent and retaining them, do you have enough data to indicate what you've done well in terms of recruiting? Or do you feel like you're just doing this ad hoc and you in instinctively know who's a good fit and who's not? I would just say like, it's a lot of clutter in the market right now and a lot of recruiters trying to source the same t talent. And I think when someone from the company reaches whether it's the hiring manager or myself or Mike or Amy or head of technology and stands out from the crowd. And that's been the anecdotal feedback we've received from our applicants. So that's how we've created a, a bit of a competitive edge on talent. I think it was you that had turned me on to the All In podcast. Do you still listen to All In and or what other podcasts do you find beneficial or productive to listen to as a CEO? I listen to the All In. 
it used to be a 45 minute drive to the office. So I typically try to save those for the drive. No, that's about it. I'm not really a big, I get that hour day in the morning. I try to make calls to family and my folks back out West on the ride home. So looking at your background in CPG and with startups, there are a couple of names that come to mind. One is Anheuser-Busch, the other is Lightspeed. At this point, probably folks know about Lightspeed, I would think, certainly if looking at Canadian tech success stories, but you were there many years ago. Is there anything from that experience that you've taken with you into car data? Yeah. So Dax, who's the CEO founder, he spoke to our class in McGill and I just fell in love with the company, hot tech company. It was really cool. We, they invited us to an open house. It was epic office, incredibly cool. So I ultimately pushed all my Worcester classes to the evening so I could work there during the days as an intern. And I like to say I was their first marketing intern. And then through that course of that, my time there, I got close with who ended up being the CFO of the business, Dave Sherry, who's left and gone on to, to do other things. But he was an amazing mentor. And I really learned a lot from him. And I would just say his management style was always, he would always stand up for folks on his team that maybe they made a mistake with a partner or a customer, but he always backed them up and provided the shielding needed to feel comfortable working, doing a good job and providing the coaching and the feedback in private. And I always try to do that with the team. That was the, the biggest learning, I would say. It was an amazing time when I was there to, to really build my foundation in the tech community. It's cool. And it's a cool story. Cardata.co. For more info on Cardata, reimburse mileage. Simple. Folks can book a demo there. Thanks for doing this, Jared. It's been a while. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. 
Electricast.